All right, well, we are going into a new section in the book of 1 Corinthians today. We finished all the beginning stuff, all the intro greeting, that kind of thing. Now we're in the real body of the letter. Uh, Today we are going to start the longest section in 1 Corinthians, which goes from here all the way to the end of chapter 4, almost four whole chapters. And he talks about one thing. He talks about worldly wisdom and its effect on the church. Uh, Now, As we do that, what we're going to find is that because the Corinthians were in a very similar situation to the one we are in, they were walking around in their daily lives in a city very much like Greenwood and Indianapolis and really many cities in the West, we're going to find that there is so much in common that explains what is going on around us in the American church as well. In these first few parts of it, the Lord is just going to guard us against the dangers of worldly wisdom. Now, as I say that, you may be wondering, okay, what do you mean by worldly wisdom? Uh, Let me do this. Let me give you a primer on what the scriptures say about godly wisdom and worldly wisdom. And then what we're going to find is that what the scriptures teach elsewhere are actually playing out in real time here in the Corinthian church. So I'm going to do like a sidebar here before we get even into today's text and just walk you through a few concepts in scripture that I think will help lay a foundation and help us to understand that. So here's the big question we want to ask. What is the difference between worldly wisdom and and godly wisdom? There are two kinds of wisdom in the scriptures, what I'm calling today godly wisdom and worldly wisdom. And maybe the text that parses out the differences between them the clearest would be the last paragraph in James chapter 3. So I'll summarize that for you here. There, There is godly wisdom which has a source and has a heart and has fruit. Both of these kinds of wisdom, they have their source, their heart, and their fruit. Uh, Godly wisdom is given to the heart that longs to please God and do life his way. It's given to a God-fearing heart. So this is somebody who looks to God in awe and wonder, hears the great commands to love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself, and says, I want to do that, but I don't have the skill set to do that. If I'm going to love my family well, I'm going to need to get good at my job. If I'm going to love my church well, I'm going to need to get good at doing something around here. If I'm going to get along with people, I need more relational skills. And so looks to God and says, God, I want to walk in your ways, but I need your help. Will you give me wisdom? And what that heart finds is that God is very generous to give his wisdom to help you walk in his ways. So it's got that heart of one who longs to please God and walk with God. And the source of godly wisdom is God himself who gives it. You can see how generous God is to give his wisdom just by looking in the book of the Proverbs and seeing how much wisdom he just spells out for free for anybody who wants it. You just got to open up the book and read. I mean, you can take the blue Bible in front of you home for free today, open up to the middle book and just start reading the Proverbs and learning wisdom directly from God. He's that generous with it. Furthermore, when people go to him and ask in prayer, will you give me wisdom? He's very generous to give it. And so what this person winds up learning is how to get along in life, how to get along better with others, how to do good deeds and do them well. And so that produces the fruit. And the fruit is good deeds and peace with other people. 
this makes sense, right? Some person's been longing to learn how to do good things for God and how to get along with others and love others. And so in their life, you're going to see that. They're going to have the skills to get along better with other people. They're going to have the skills to do good works for others. So it's got a source in God himself into a heart that longs to please God. And from that come the fruits of good deeds and relational peace. That's godly wisdom. There's another kind of wisdom too. We can call that worldly wisdom. James calls it demonic wisdom, if you want to get real dramatic there. Uh, This is a wisdom that starts with a heart that says, I want to get ahead in life. I want to burn my enemies, and I want to get what I want out of life. Uh, James calls that bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. That's the desire to burn your enemies and get ahead of other people for the sake of yourself. So you may want to do one of, some of the same things, right? Succeed at work, make lots of friends, same things good people want to do, but you want to do it for yourself. You want to do it to burn other people and benefit yourself. Now, when a heart starts working like that, with that kind of stuff going on inside it, Satan down below just says, I can work with that. Right? I've been doing that for thousands of years. And I will teach you all of my dark arts, right? I will teach you how to say that thing in just such a way as to hurt that person just like you want to do it. I will teach you how to word that thing in a way to damage somebody else's reputation just like you want to do it. I will teach you how to get ahead and bend everyone else in your life to your will using all sorts of maniacal practices. I will teach you lofty and high wisdom so that you can be smarter than everyone else and prove how how much smarter you are than everyone else. He is, you might say, insidiously generous with his wisdom as well. And those who with impure hearts are coveting knowledge for their own sake, he is glad to teach it. Now that knowledge, if your heart is longing to get what you want and harm other people, burn your enemies, and Satan is teaching you all the skills and maniacal abilities you need to do that, there's going to be fruit that come out of that as well. Uh, James says where there is selfish ambition and bitter jealousy, there will be disorder in every vile practice. Uh, if you want me to simplify that, that's conflict and immorality, right? If you, if you get good at burning other people and getting people to do what you want, if you get good at securing sinful things for yourself and using sinful means to get what you want, there's going to be drama and sin all over your life. That, that's the fruit that's going to come out of that. There's James 3 in a nutshell. So you've got godly wisdom, which comes from God, into a heart that fears him and longs to do good and produces the fruit of good deeds and relational peace. And you've got worldly wisdom coming from below into a heart that is full of selfishness and bitter jealousy. And out of that comes the fruit of conflict and immorality. Okay. Let me add one more concept onto that. If that's the foundation, we'll add a layer here. That means... If you are looking at any institution, a school, a church, a workplace, you know, when people gather together, they're working on some kind of wisdom and knowledge, and you may be wondering, okay, how much of this is good stuff I should listen to, and how much of this is bad stuff I should not listen to? 
Well, there is fruit of godly wisdom and worldly wisdom, and you can look in that institution and just see. Uh, Do the people there tend to get along relationally and respect each other, or is it full of drama and conflict? Do, do the people there tend to be full of good deeds and doing good things out of the earnestness of their heart? Or is there just constant rampant sin and immorality in the place? You can just look at the fruit and know what is at the root. Uh, we could evaluate, say, Hollywood by that very metric. You don't have to watch the movies coming out of Hollywood to know that there's worldly wisdom in them. You just have to look at Hollywood. You just have to read the news, right? There is immorality and conflict all over the place in Hollywood. And so we would expect then that the wisdom that comes out of there would be full of worldly wisdom. You can evaluate institutions by those two fruits, conflict and, uh, and good deeds. Now, why do I say all that? Okay, I paved all that road so that we could drive down it now. If we look at 1 Corinthians here, if you look at it with me, The next verse we're going to read, verse 10, he's going to appeal to them that there no longer be any divisions among them, right? So what is there in the church? There's conflict, right, in the church. He is going to spend three and a half chapters talking about the division and the worldly wisdom that has taken hold in Corinth. And then what's he going to start talking about in chapter five? Immorality. So Worldly wisdom in an institution produces conflict and immorality. And what is Paul talking about in Corinth? Worldly wisdom, conflict, and immorality. So the world's wisdom had taken hold in the Corinthian church, and it had produced all manner of division and quarreling and all manner of immorality among them. There's the setup for what's going on here in Corinth. Now, let's look at the text and let's see these first few things that Paul has to say about what happens when the church falls for the allure of counterfeit worldly wisdom instead of God's good wisdom. We'll start with chapter 10. We will not read all the way to 31. We're only going to read to 18 this week, even though you have more than that in your handouts. Here's 1 Corinthians chapter 1, starting at verse 10. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the house of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with eloquent words of wisdom, lest the cross be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross is folly, to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. These are the words of God, and through them, our Lord calls all of us to evaluate the worldly wisdom we may have taken hold of and warns us against the dangers of worldly wisdom. Now, 
These first few verses describe the conflict that was going on in Corinth. Now, worldly wisdom is alluring, right? Wouldn't it be nice to know just what to do to get the New York Times to write a great op-ed about our church? Wouldn't it be nice to know just how to get followers on TikTok and how to get them to all look at what we're doing? Wouldn't it be nice to know just how to frame things so that everyone in Greenwood thought that this church was the place to be? It sure would be nice to have that kind of wisdom and that kind of power. It's alluring. They had taken hold of it, and what they were doing was dividing into groups around which preacher they thought was the best. Now, why were they doing that? Well, in our day, we lift up entertainers that can draw a big crowd, or we lift up football players who can score touchdowns, or any number of people. Uh, In their day, the rock stars of the day were the people who could give the best speeches. They were very into rhetoric. The whole rhetorical culture and speech-giving culture came out of Greco-Roman culture. If you could give a rousing speech that was more moving and powerful than the other guy's speech, then everybody was all about you. Didn't matter if what you said was true or not. You just had to be able to work that crowd and move that crowd. Now, that's a pretty rare gift to be able to do that. And so for most people, uh, the way that they would try to get ahead in the world over each other was to associate themselves with one of these great speech givers. Kind of like today, if you wanted to be real cool, you might try to get into the entourage of some celebrity so that, you know, if I can't meet the big celebrity, maybe I can meet you and talk to you and everybody wants to talk to you because you travel with Beyonce or somebody like that. So they're saying, they're looking at these great speakers that have come into the church, Peter, Paul, Apollos, coming in with the power of God in obedience to God, preaching and calling people to Jesus Christ. And the Spirit of God is coming out, and there is great power in these speeches. And they're thinking to themselves, ooh, I know how to get ahead in the world. Start telling people that I'm with that guy. Right? Now everybody will respect me because I'm with Peter. Right? And then the guy over here said, well, everybody's going to respect me because I'm with Paul. I'm one of Paul's people. Right. So they start dividing into these groups in this way. Now, what winds up happening, if we can just imagine, if, if my sense of superiority over you comes down to Peter being a better public speaker than Paul, and your sense of superiority over me comes down to Paul being a better speaker than Peter, what are we going to do? We're going to fight about which one of them is a better speaker. So in their worldly desire to get ahead and be latched on to whoever the best speaker was of the day, they were dividing and destroying their church. Not to mention emptying the gospel of its power as these godly preachers were coming, not with the desire to see which one of them could get the most followers or which one of them could baptize the most or even who could give the most eloquent speech. They were coming to proclaim the gospel because they wanted to, be, see, they wanted to see souls saved. So they're proclaiming it in earnest but their hearers are distorting it and using it to try to get a leg up on each other by associating themselves with the one that they think is the best speaker. So, 
They'd taken hold of worldly wisdom, right, out of selfish ambition to try to get ahead by latching on to the best speaker. They had divided the church, right? Worldly wisdom brings division, just as James said. And now it's happening in Corinth. So that brings us to our first point today. The first point is very simply that worldly wisdom turns us against each other. Uh, We saw that play out in the book of James a moment ago as I explained that to you. The inverse happens in the book of Proverbs. So many of the Proverbs, so much of God's wisdom is about how to mend conflict and bring it back together, how to speak gently, how to make peace. Worldly wisdom does the exact opposite. It divides people. It chops them up. Where there is bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, there will be conflict and all kinds of vile practices. We see it happening right here in the Corinthian church. That means that church conflict is a symptom of a deeper problem. It is possible to disagree about doctrine and not fight. It is also possible to disagree about, I don't know, maybe what color the paint on this wall should be and not fight, right? You can disagree about things and not fight about them. But when selfish ambition and jealousy, that is when mm, bad feelings and pride come into the mix, all of a sudden those disagreements turn into genuine earnest conflict, right? Why does that happen? That happens because we are chasing after worldly wisdom and it's led to conflict. So that means then really specifically for us, what we have to do whenever there is a conflict in the church, if you can think of people that you're frustrated with in the church, if you ever get in a relational conflict with others in the church, or when a church starts to form factions and fight against each other, which thank God I've never seen happen here, Or even when different churches and denominations start not just disagreeing, but fighting with each other, we have to step back and and check our hearts. Wait a minute, I I may think that I'm right on this issue, but, but where's my heart? Is there pride in my heart? Am I trying to get ahead? Am I trying to make sure that we win and they lose? Is that my goal here? And what kind of methods am I using? Am I, am I putting godly wisdom into practice by speaking as gently as I can and doing all I can to bring peace and unity? Or have I turned to backbiting and whispering and all of the moves that we love to do to harm each other? You can be right about a doctrinal issue and still be in the wrong in the fight. Because it's not just about having the right boxes checked. No, our hearts have to be right before God. So there's a heart check for us anytime we get into conflict. Thank God this doesn't apply much here. I almost never see conflict in our church. But when it does come, we have to check our hearts for worldly wisdom. This is what a farmer would do if his trees were producing bad fruit, right? Say it's an apple orchard. All of a sudden the apples just start coming out rotten, right? What is he going to do? He's not going to examine the apples and say, how do I fix this apple? He's going to say, what's wrong with my trees, right? He's going to try, am I feeding them wrong? Is the wrong water going into them? Is there trees in the root or in the branches? He's going to go to the heart of the matter and fix it so that the trees begin producing good apples again. And the church must do the same thing when we're in conflict. Yes, the fruit matters, but we got to go back to the root. Have I fallen to bitter jealousy? Have we fallen to selfish ambition? Let's let that play out 
and then see how much better the fruit comes. So there's our first point. Worldly wisdom turns us against each other. We see that happening in those first verses up till verse 16. Things get very interesting in verse 17. He says there, For Christ didn't send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross be emptied of his power. So he's essentially saying, like this game you guys are playing, like dividing over who's the better preacher and who baptized who, that is not why we came to Corinth, right? We are not playing this game along with you guys, is essentially what he is saying. And then in 18, he says, that's because the word of the cross is foolish to those who are perishing, but to we who are being saved, it's the power of God. So what he's saying there is our second point, that Jesus and his cross always appear foolish to the world. He says the word of the cross is folly to those that are perishing. You could say this a different way. The gospel does not meet the world's expectations. Uh, Or maybe the simplest way to say it is that the gospel will never be cool. It has never been cool, and it never will be cool. Uh, Because to those who are perishing, to those who are wise in worldly wisdom, the gospel just looks dumb. It just looks foolish and stupid. Now, to we who are being saved, it's the power of God. But to those wise in worldly wisdom, it just looks dumb. He does this by using somewhat of a wordplay here when he says uh, the word of the cross. And to understand that, we need to understand crucifixion through the eyes of the Roman world and through our eyes, right? Now, when we hear the word of the cross, if you're a believer in Jesus with me, you're probably thinking the message of the cross, the gospel, right? The power of God for salvation, uh, which if you have never heard before, is simply the message that Jesus Christ came to earth. God made man, came to earth, lived a perfect life so that he could give us credit for that perfect life where we have all sinned, died a sinner's death to pay for our sins, And then rose from the dead with victory over death to share his power and victory with us so that we can rise from the dead too. And he offers that freely, the perfect record that he earned, the death paying for our sins and the power of resurrection from the dead. He offers that freely to anyone who would come and would follow him. Now that's good news, but it didn't sound good to the Roman world. Why? Because our Savior died on a a cross of all things. You see, in the Roman world, crucifixion wasn't just a method of execution. It was a, it was a message. It was meant to send a message. When the government and the soldiers take a, a man or sometimes a woman and just beat that person mercilessly in front of everyone, shred their skin to where they're bleeding everywhere, and then, and then strip them fully and completely and make them walk up this hill like a parade in front of everybody while everyone hurls insults and who knows what at them while they're exhausted and then hangs them up in front of a crowd to just bleed, thirst, starve, and suffocate to death in front of everyone while the crowd hurls mocking and insults at them. If you're an eight-year-old in the Roman world, you see that and you get the message. Do not do what that person did. It is a message of of fear and and terror. 
the message the government intended to send was, everyone come and look at this perishing fool. We will put him in front of all of you. Everyone come and hurl insults at this perishing fool who would dare to defy the Roman government. So imagine growing up in that world, and then this guy named Apollos comes to town and says, our Lord was crucified. Anybody want to come follow him? No, right? That's foolishness to the world. So the good news of the gospel appeared foolish in the Roman world. Now, All throughout time and history and in various different places, there has been different forms of worldly wisdom that have come and have gone. But the thing they all have in common is that because they all come from below, they are all vehemently opposed to the cross. And so the same thing is true today. Whatever avenue of worldly wisdom you might come from, the cross is going to appear foolish to you. Today's a little different because all of the world's institutions have kind of fractured into all different kinds of ideologies and all different sorts of ways of living. But no matter what part of worldly wisdom you come from, it's just going to look foolish to you. I'll give you a couple of examples. Uh, uh, One of the many fragments in the political world today is all about pushing back against big government. Like that's the one thing that they want to do. Not that that's always a bad thing. Sometimes that's a good thing. But this is the one thing that one section of of our little political world wants to do. Uh, So let's imagine you grew up in that. The one thing you care about is pushing back against big government. You'll latch on to any candidate that wants to push back against big government. And then... Somebody from our church uh, meets you and talks to you about the gospel, and they hear what you have to say about pushing back against big government, and they say, oh, that's really interesting. We follow somebody whose country was actually taken over by a big government, by the Roman Empire. Oh, well, now, now you're interested, right? Oh, what did he do? Did he push back? Did he fight back? Did he, did he get the Romans off their back? Um, no, he actually let them crucify him. Oh. Oh, so it was like in Braveheart, like when you let them kill you, but you shout out freedom, and that gets your followers to rise up and overturn the big bad government? Uh, No, he actually told his followers that they have to take up their cross and follow him as well. Want to come follow him? No, right? It just looks foolish. Uh, On the other side, you know, one of the many fragments over on the American left is all about uh, overturning unjust social systems so that minority oppressed groups can be free and be on top again. Uh, So if you grow up in that culture, you're just thinking about minorities all the time and overturning systems all the time. You want to revolutionize every government system that you see. Imagine you meet somebody from our church And they say, oh, actually, uh, we follow somebody who lived under an oppressive government, and he was actually a minority. He was a Jew under the the Roman government. Wow, you might be interested for a minute. What did he do? Did did he overturn the whole system and bring down the Roman Empire? Uh, Nope. He just let them crucify him and told his followers to take up their cross also. Uh, oh, okay, but did he, did he sow in them the seeds of dissent so they would overturn it a hundred years later? No, actually, he told them to submit to the government, and he, and he didn't even overturn some of the unjust systems within it, like slavery. He just taught us how to love each other in an imperfect system. He didn't overturn anything. Want to come 
follow him? No, right? Just looks foolish. What if you're in the branch of the world that puts entertainment heroes on a pedestal, right? The, the, the Beyonce's and Bad Bunnies of the world that can fill stadiums and get billions of people to listen to them on Spotify, lifting them up high. Anybody who can work a crowd like that and get the crowd to come and cheer for them, and you go to the concert and you're like, oh, they're the best, right? If you're deep into that, and then you meet somebody from our church, and we say, oh yeah, we actually follow somebody who was, who was lifted up and put in front of a crowd also. Yeah. Oh man, did they like cheer for him and, and give him awards? And oh, did the academy of his day really love him? And no, no, they were called the Pharisees and they actually really hated him. They definitely didn't give him any awards. Oh, well, what happened when he was put up in front of the crowd? Did everybody just cheer with all their might for him? No, he actually, they just mocked him and hurled insults at him and he just received that and then he died. Want to come, want to come follow him? It just sounds foolish, right? No matter what system of worldly wisdom you're in, there's just a disconnect that says, crucified savior? Come and follow him? No, no, I don't think so. If what you love most is the victorious sports hero, you're not going to like the bloodied guy on the cross. If, if what you love most is, is being the richest person you could possibly be, you're not going to love the guy who chose to live as a homeless man for his whole ministry. If what you love most is therapy culture and the point of life is feeling better and the point of religion is to help you feel better, you're not going to like the, the man of sorrows. And that was his name. If what you love most is finding who you are sexually and expressing that and treating that like the ultimate of human existence, you're not going to like a man who had men and women following him everywhere he went and just never engaged in any of that, never even married. No matter what it is you hold dear, no matter what system of worldly wisdom you're in, the cross is going to appear foolish to you. And so Paul says the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But here's the amazing thing. People still come to him. Despite the fact that wherever we were all from, we come to him anyway. And why is that? Well, because of the second half of the sentence, to we who are being saved, it's the power of God. There's the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It can draw in people that should, by all logic and wisdom, just absolutely hate this message. When I was a young man, I was all about proving to everybody how righteous I was and thinking of myself as more righteous than everyone else. And over time, slowly, the Lord met me and his message to me was, you're actually a sinner. That's the last thing I wanted to hear, right? Uh, the picture of a bloodied man on the cross and him saying, that's what you deserve because you're a sinner. That's the last, that, that looked like foolishness to me. And yet, I came in anyway and received the gospel. And I bet you have a similar story too, right? For all logic, you should have just rejected that message when you heard it. And yet, you came in, right? Because the word of the cross is folly to those that are perishing, but to we who are being saved, it's, it's the power of God. And then, 
we come in and we find that not only did the gospel defy our expectations, it then exceeds our expectation. That one who wants to see unjust social systems and governments overturn then begins to read in Revelation about the return of Jesus Christ where he overturns every government and puts a just system in place. That one who longs to see somebody get glory, laud, and honor like at a concert comes to Jesus and reads words like, worthy is the lamb who is slain to receive glory and power and honor and might and says, this turns out to be better than any pop star I have ever followed. That one who wants to see somebody win in victory comes to Jesus and sees his victory over death and says, this is better than any Super Bowl victory that I have ever watched. That one who wants the satisfaction of, quote, sexual fulfillment comes to Jesus and sees his glory and says, this is more satisfying than anything that I ever could have wanted. So he doesn't just defy our expectations. Then it's the power of God. He exceeds our expectations. That's the wonder of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the power of God. So if I were to sum that point up differently, I'd just say that the gospel defies the expectations of the world and it exceeds the expectations of the world. So my call to you is come to that Jesus. Yes, he says some things that you don't like, but if you will hear him, he will say things you love even more. Come to that Jesus. Okay, so that's verse 18. We skipped over verse 17 though, didn't we? Now that we've got some of those principles laid down, Corinthians are dividing because they're deciding which preacher they want to be allied with to get ahead in the world. Paul says this message is foolish to the world anyway. And so he says, Christ did not send me to baptize or preach the gospel, uh, but to preach the gospel and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross be emptied of its power. Now, obviously, part of the Great Commission is to baptize people. So baptizing was part of what he was sent. So what does he mean? He means I'm not playing this game that you Corinthians are playing, right? Who can baptize the most people? Who has the most followers? I think, well, I didn't baptize many of you, so nobody can accuse me of saying that. So he did not go to Corinth to try to win the biggest personal following that he could get. That's what he means. Christ didn't send me to baptize, to get my own converts. And he didn't go to Corinth to prove himself with what he calls eloquent wisdom, right? That was how worldly wisdom expressed itself in the day. Give an eloquent speech and everyone will follow you and love you. So he could have gone, given a knockout speech, won all sorts of followers to Paul, but he says, that's not what I was sent to do. I was sent to preach the gospel, a message that is foolish to them. And so that's what I did. So essentially, he did not go to win personal followers or compete for the world's favor. He went to preach the gospel. Importantly, he says, lest the cross be emptied of its power. So if he had gone to win personal followers and prove what a great speech giver he was, actually that would have cheapened the message. So what does that mean? Well, it follows, doesn't it? If this message is foolish to the world, if the people proclaiming it try to look cool to the world, 
Well, that doesn't match, does it, right? If God from heaven is proclaiming a message that looks foolish and, and we are here preaching it saying, hey, don't we sound cool? Don't you like us? That cheapens the message of the gospel. And so our last point is that preachers who compete for the world's favor cheapen the gospel. Essentially, what that does is turns the tables on who is the judge and who is being judged when the gospel is preached. The truth is God in heaven is judge, right? And we are all being judged by him. And a preacher declares that with authority. But if instead what a preacher were to try to do was win a personal following by seeking people's favor and getting them to like him, he would essentially be putting himself forward for their judgment. That makes you guys the judge and me the one who is being judged, right? That robs all the power out of the message. So when the gospel is proclaimed, we're here trembling, thinking thoughts like, how could I ever stand before God? How could I please God? Who will deliver me from this body of death that is going to go before the great judge one day? Thanks be to God, to Jesus Christ, who has saved me from my sin, and I do not have to fear the judgment of God. Now, that's powerful stuff, right? If instead the preacher is coming forward to try to court your favor, then you're thinking thoughts like, hmm, that guy's pretty good. Yeah, all right. And air goes out of the balloon, right? All the power of the message is lost. And so when preachers compete to try to win the world's favor, they wind up cheapening the message of the gospel. So what would that look like if it happened? Well, We got that wisdom from James on what worldly wisdom looks like. It would start with a heart that says, I want to get ahead, which for a preacher is I want to build a personal following for myself, right? And particularly, I want to get ahead over and above those other preachers, right? So you see another preacher succeed, and "Mm, I don't like that. I don't like that guy. Now there's bitter jealousy to go along with the selfish ambition. And Satan is there to meet that with his diabolical wisdom. Oh, you want want to court a following for yourself instead of Jesus, huh? I can help you do that, right? Here's some moves you can do. You want to to trick a crowd and do all kinds of trials? I'll show you how to do that. You want to figure out how to use the internet and whatever new technology is there to develop an even bigger following for you? You want to find franchise models so that you can not just have your massive church, but eight massive churches that are watching you to please you? I'll teach you how to do all all of that. But the fruit on the back end is always conflict and immorality because that's the fruit of worldly wisdom. There's your rise and fall of XYZ megachurch documentary in a nutshell right there. We've seen that play out all over our country. A preacher that wants to build a big following for himself, a big following develops, immorality and conflict take hold, and the whole thing is gone. Paul's writing to the Corinthians saying, you guys are next on that documentary list if you don't turn from this, turn from that worldly wisdom. And so what we got to do is guard ourselves from it, right? That means I have to guard my heart from that desire to build a personal following for me or that desire to do better than some other preacher in town that I don't like because he's doing better than me. It means we have to watch our methods and ask, are we doing this in godly wisdom or are we trying to get clever and conniving about it? 
And then we have to continually evaluate the fruit in our church. Is there purity in the way that we are walking? Do these teachings from the scripture really lead us into purity? Is there harmony and unity and an effort toward unity in the church? Those are the things we have to watch to make sure that our church is guarded against worldly wisdom. So what this would look like in good form would be not just a preacher, but deacons and other pastors and a whole church that says, okay, God sent us here to preach the gospel. Lord, how do we do that in a way that pleases you and just scours the scripture to find advice on how to do it? Studies the Proverbs, how do we speak to each other? How do I speak from the pulpit? Tries to do all this in the way that God teaches us how to do it. And then the fruit would be unity in a church and purity in the church. That church is what we are striving for. That's why I thank God that we've had a season of unity in the church, because it says good things about what's going on in the core, right? That's why I thank God that there aren't any scandalous issues of church discipline in our church, because it says things about what is going on at the core. What is in the root comes out in the fruit. And so when we see good fruit, we thank God and we rejoice. We go to him and we say, God, it's you who did that. Would you keep us in your wisdom and guard us from going astray to the allure of all of the counterfeit wisdom that's out there. So there you have three points about worldly wisdom to get us started. We'll go deeper next week, and we'll go even deeper in the next week. If you've got questions that are unanswered, decent chance Paul is going to answer them. It's a long section. If you still got questions by the end that aren't answered, well, I guess ask me, but I probably won't know the answer if it's not in here. Uh, so we'll try, though. Who knows? We'll see. Uh, for now, let's just pray and ask the Lord to guard us against that allure of counterfeit wisdom.